0: it reminded me that uh, sometimes you're not sure what you really know or what you think you know isn't quite what you thought it was. So for instance, you think even two or three years ago uh, large financial institutions, household names looked like they couldn't do anything more better than simply make tons and tons of money and today they have to be bailed out to keep their doors open or Banks know this too. People who looked like good risks or businesses that looked like good risks not all that long ago ended up defaulting on their loans, of course, in numerous, numerous numbers. Things that looked like sure things turned out to be anything but. So, how do you determine what is and isn't? How do you determine if a thing is what it claims to be, the veracity of something? Is it what it appears to be? How do we tell the difference between gold and fool's gold? The real thing and that which is masquerading. You know, this would be important in any area of life, and certainly I'm thinking of finances this morning because the country's in the greatest recession since the greatest depression in the country's history. But it's equally and more important in the arena of spiritual life. And that's where we'll be plugging in this philosophy or this important aspect of life this morning. The passage we're in this morning counsels Christians to be open and willing to believe that God is at work in a person, event, or message on one hand, while on the other hand requiring the person or message to prove their authenticity. This goes back to the Cold War statement of Ronald Reagan. Trust, but verify. That's what we're talking about this morning. Trust, but verify. We're finishing First Thessalonians this morning. Uh, there's ten verses, I confess, on the front end. I'm going to pay short shrift to most of this passage, but I needed to finish today. We're going we're to pin most of our time on one element of this. I hope you've been even half as encouraged or challenged in this letter as I have will be in chapter 5, verses 19 through 28. Paul says, Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances or words, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you or make you holy or set you apart entirely, and may your spirit soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you and He also will bring it to pass. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I adjure you or command you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We'll park again primarily in verses 19 through 22. Paul says, Two do's. And two don'ts in these verses. Two don'ts first, verse 19, don't quench the spirit. Verse 20, don't despise prophetic words. And then two do's, verse 21, examine all things, hold on to the good. And verse 22, abstain from every form of evil or evil in every form. We'll start with the first two do nots. Paul says don't quench the the Spirit don't despise prophetic words. In the Greek text, this is really simple. It says, and the syntax is different, but it says, the Spirit don't quench, the prophetic don't despise. It's simple and to the point. Two things. Don't refuse what the Holy Spirit is saying. Don't refuse what the Holy Spirit is doing. And the Holy Spirit's work, remember this is in the church, is compared to a fire. And so Paul says, you have the ability to, as it were, pour water over the fire that the Holy Spirit is starting in the church. That is, whatever the Holy Spirit wants to say or do. And Paul says, don't do it. Now, if you're in a church, in our church or the Thessalonian church, and you tell somebody you are putting out the fire of the Holy Spirit, they'd probably say, what do you mean? Uh, We're Christians. We want to honor Christ. We hope God's moving in our midst. So why would we need to be told, don't put out the fire of the Holy Spirit? And I think this is what's going on for them and probably for us at times too. It's this. It's that we think we know in our head what God will and won't do. So if something occurs outside of those boundaries, we assume it's a given. That's not God. We're quick to assume certain things, certain people, certain things that are done or said or whatever are not from God. And sometimes there's probably some valid reasons for that. Other times there's not. Other times we have prejudices that I think here... Paul's trying to address. Now, like some other statements we've read in Thessalonians, there's not a lot of background in the letter about why Paul needs to say this. He doesn't develop the scenario that he's addressing. So just for a comparison, you can turn if you want. I'm not going to go there, but just so you'll know. Reference, 1 Corinthians 14, there's a passage about the use of spiritual gifts in a church. And The Corinthian church, they're they're the same Greek culture. They're right down the road, the Aegean Sea, as it were, from Thessalonia. So similar culture, similar time. And when Paul writes them in 1 Corinthians 14, he describes basically a scene of chaos in the church when people were trying to honor Christ and benefit others, but they were falling short. And Paul reproves them. And what was going on was people who could speak or pray in a language they hadn't formerly understood, were doing so, and they were doing so one on top of the other. And people who believed that God had given them something on the moment to stand up and speak to the church were doing so, but it was one after another after another. And so what was happening was instead of order, there was chaos. And instead of people going away encouraged and challenged and convicted, they were going away confused. And so there might have been some of that same element going on in Thessalonica. We just don't know. But if it was anything like that, you can imagine, you might just say to yourself, look, rather than trying to come to grips with this stuff, I'm just going to sweep it all away. I'm just going to say none of that stuff's from God and have done with it. Because that's simple. But Paul says here to this group, you don't have that liberty. You don't have that liberty. For whatever reasons, those in Thessalonica were simply wanting to reject out of hand what God was saying or doing. I may step on toes two directions this morning. If I do, sorry, deal with it. And if you've got questions or if you want to challenge anything I'm saying, I I welcome you to do so and I'd be glad to interact with you either way. I grew up Roman Catholic. All my early Christian years were with Charismatics. And then I've served on a Bible church for 10 years. I've pretty much seen almost every aspect of the church. I've lived in it. And so I know a little bit about what I'm talking about just on the dynamic end of things. In our own time, there are those who will tell you that God will not, does not, cannot operate in certain ways in the earth today, primarily along the lines of certain, what are called spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. And that is, the thinking goes something like this when the New Testament was completed and the book of Revelation was added to the canon of the Scripture, God quit speaking to mankind on the earth. The canon of the Scripture was fulfilled, and God quit speaking. And so after that, God no longer speaks in what would be called here prophetic utterances. And the rationale would go something like this. In Paul's day, when he's writing, God's still speaking, the canon of the Scripture is still open, and so God spoke prophetically. People could get up, be inspired by the Spirit, and say things that were from God. But that's not the case today. This is called cessationism. It also holds basically that God does not give gifts of the Spirit, listed in 1 Corinthians 12, that most of us would consider sort of more out there. Uh, gifts of healing, miracles, uh, some, something along the line of gifts of faith, etc. <coughs> cessationism. If you're from a Bible church background, this is probably something you've grown up hearing. And it's something, to one degree, I, if I didn't fully embrace in the past, held to at some level. I I think it's poor theology, though. I'll give you five reasons why I could come up with others. And if you disagree, you can can, uh, fill me in later. But these are some of the reasons. This may be a little boring if this doesn't interest you. I don't know. Hang in there and remember it for later. The first is this. The biblical rationale for a cessationist position that God will not speak in what Paul says here are prophetic words is that 1 Corinthians 13 verses 10 through 12 are understood to be that once the canon of the scriptures was completed, the perfect had come and the partial was done away with. And in the language of chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, Paul says... When I was a child, I did things as a child would. But when I grow up, I put away childish things. And when the perfect comes, that is, the New Testament, the completion of the canon of the Bible, the partial prophetic utterances, they would be put away as well. The problem I have with the text itself is that I don't think the text, this text, actually can be used to support cessationist arguments because it also says that When the perfect comes, I will know as fully as I have been known. And guys, I don't know about you, but I do not know fully as I have been known. Anyway, anyhow. I think that's an understanding you have to read back into this uh, verse. I don't think it's there. Second reason is this. The argument goes that if someone stands up today and says they think they're inspired by the Spirit of God to speak something to a person or to a group, extemporaneously that's not words out of the Bible, the the thinking goes like this. If I claim to speak inspired words I'm saying that my words are on par or on the same level with the Bible. But biblically that simply isn't true and it's a logical fallacy. It requires, if you will, that A equals B and and A does not have to equal B. For instance, in 1 Corinthians when Paul writes to the Corinthian church he says there's prophets among you And when you speak, it should be like this. Those prophecies were not recorded, and we do not have them today. They were not understood to be on the same par as Scripture. And in fact, which we'll get into later, at the end of chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians, the church is commanded to sit in judgment on those prophetic words that were uttered. So we can't say that if I feel inspired to speak, I think God's given me something to say, let's say to you or to the church, I can't say that must be equal to Scripture because the early church didn't treat it that way. Prophetic utterances that were judged by others, that's not the same as the Scripture. And they weren't recorded for the church. So those speaking them and those hearing them did not record them. They were not understood to be the same value, the same par as the Bible itself. Third reason... In the history of the church, and if you want some stories along this line, Jack Deere's book, Surprised by the Voice of the Spirit, has some great stories, very encouraging stories, about godly men and women who read their Bibles, who spent hours and days in prayer on their knees, who knew God had told them things. And they told other people some of these things. And what they said happened. Very dramatic stories and, and very encouraging stories. And I think maybe one of the stories I'll share with you later is from that. But we have godly men and women throughout the history of the church who believed God inspired them to know something and to say something. It was verified it happened, etc. These weren't cranks, they weren't left wing nut jobs, anything like that. These were serious leaders in the church whom this was happening. Most of the, the stories Dear uh, recounts are out of the Scottish Reformation period, a time of great persecution. The fourth reason is this. If you have a spiritual gift of any kind, its source is the Holy Spirit and its power is the Holy Spirit. This thinking that says, the cessationist thinking says there are spiritual gifts and there are spiritual gifts. But the scriptures don't let you get away with that. If it's a spiritual gift, if you have the spiritual gift of service, let's say, or mercy or administration, if it's a spiritual gift, it is by nature supernatural. It is supernatural in its origin and in its strength. No less so than if you have a gift of miracles or healing. Paul does say in 1 Corinthians that some great uh, gifts are greater than others. For instance, he says prophecy is a greater gift than speaking in tongues, there. But it was because of the effect on the church and, and how it affected the church generally. But if it's a spiritual gift, it is by nature supernatural. So it won't do to say some are more supernatural than others. They're all supernatural. And the fifth is this. God does as he pleases. If you think you've got God in your box, you have an idol, you don't have the living God in a box. You don't know what God will choose to do and what he won't do. And when Paul closes his marvelous section in Romans and he's talking about God's uh, interaction with Israel and with us at the end, He basically says God's thoughts are so high above ours, we just can't get there. I just stand in awe of God's thoughts and His ways and His works. But we can't comprehend God. We don't know what He'll do and what He won't do. And in saying that, don't misunderstand, God always acts consistent with both His character and His words. So I'm not saying God will do something, a good God won't do something evil. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if you think you can predict what God will and will not do, how He will and will not choose to act, I think you're following an idol. I don't think you're following the living God. A little different line, but along the same thought, we live in what theologians like to call the age of the Spirit. Think about this. If you were a Jew in the Old Testament times, you did not have the Holy Spirit living in you as we take for granted today. You didn't. You were regenerate. You had a new life. But you didn't have the Holy Spirit the way Christians do today. Remember, Jesus said the Spirit's been with you. That was true in the Old Testament. But now He'll be in you. That was new. And that was Pentecost on. So we live in the day which is characterized by individuals having the Holy Spirit of God living inside them. And then that's true of the, the church corporately as well. So it just seems somewhat inconsistent to me to say, on one hand, we live in the day of the Spirit and then deny the Spirit's actually working or speaking or moving on the other it's inconsistent and it won't do many Christians today and I understand why for simplicity's sake many Christians today want to act as if there is no Holy Spirit I have the Bible and the Bible's enough now you got to know your Bibles if you've ever heard me speak you know my one thing is read your Bibles this is nothing against the Bible believe me you need to know your Bibles but guess what You can know your Bibles, you can memorize your Bibles, and you won't know what God's doing, and you won't necessarily know God. Jesus in the Gospel speaks to the Sadducees. And if you remember, in the Jewish sects, the Sadducees believed there was no resurrection. These guys read their Bible. These were not dull people. These were very, very smart people. And most of the Old Testament guys in this arena, Old Testament church leaders, the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, they had their Bibles memorized. So they knew their Bibles. They'd read their Bibles. But related to the resurrection, Jesus says, guys, you don't understand because you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. We need the Holy Spirit at work in us so that we can comprehend the truth of the Bible itself. So it won't do for me to say, I have the Bible and that's enough. No, it's not enough. I need the Holy Spirit to open my mind to know what God means when He says something in the Bible. So God's, uh, God says through Paul here, two things, don't put out the Spirit's fire and don't look down on or despise what is purported to be the Spirit's work. Don't do two things. Now the two to-dos, verse 21, examine all things, hold on to that which is good, and verse 22, abstain from every form of evil or evil in every form. Now, in contrast to Christian skeptics, there are Christians who accept almost everything that is claimed to be God's work without critically evaluating acts and words in light of the scriptures and the counsel of the church. And if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, just hear what I'm saying now, okay? Christians should be the hardest-headed, clearest-thinking people on the planet. We are called to love God with our minds. And the Savior that we say we follow, He's the way and the truth and the life. He's truth with a capital T. Truth doesn't exist outside of Jesus Christ. And Paul says elsewhere, 2 Timothy 1, that that same Spirit has given us a power of love, or given us a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. Christians should be clear-thinking, hard-headed, not necessarily academically smart or astute, but we should be thinkers. We should be those who examine things. So why is it then that, in my opinion, Christians tend to be among the most soft-headed, gullible, lazy-minded, sloppy-thinking people I know? Why is that? Do you think that's too harsh? I've been around a lot of Christians. And guys, I don't think we love God with our minds. I don't think we think. It's work. So we don't do it. We watch TV. We boob out instead. I find Christians, and I believe this is true. If you just read the news, the headlines, right? Through time, Christians are the most gullible people in the world. You know why? Because we want to believe something's true. But we don't examine it. And that's what Paul says here. On one hand, be willing and be open. But on the other, you've got to be hard-headed and clear-thinking. And you've got to examine and weigh those things that claim to be from God. You can't accept them on face value. You should be that assayer that's pouring the acid or whatever on that ore that's said to be gold and see if it's the real stuff or not. We are commanded to examine all things to weigh them out, to sift them. Are they what they claim to be or not? Is God really speaking or not? We're called to examine them. Back in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul described that scene of confusion, he didn't say just quit speaking. He didn't say just quit doing all that, but he did say this. He said, if you're a person who can pray or speak in language you didn't learn, don't do that unless someone's there to interpret so that the whole church is edified. And he said, if you believe that God's given you something to share with the church, he said, up to two or at the most three people can do that in a service. And when they do, the others are to sit in judgment and weigh and discern and decide, we think God's speaking or we don't think God's speaking. So he didn't sweep it all aside, but he said, what you've got to do is you've got to bring hard-headed, biblically informed discernment to this. Don't get rid of it, but examine it. So on one hand, there's no despising. There's no attempt to pour water on what might be the Spirit's work. And on the other hand, there's no presumption that everything that might be spoken would in fact be from God, even among well-intended people. A willingness to be led by the Spirit and to hear from the Spirit and a hard-headed, no-nonsense attempt to judge whether that was in fact the Spirit speaking at all. When you hear anyone teaching from the Bible, and I certainly include myself, or you listen to somebody on the radio, you watch someone on the television, this can be Billy Graham, this can be your favorite whoever, Ravi Z, anybody, you are called on to examine the words they say to see if they line up with truth. We tend to want to be the little birds, if you've ever seen birds in a nest, they open their mouths wide and they let mom and pop shove stuff down. And we tend to be, want to be birds. So we want somebody to just cram the truth down us. We don't want to think about it for ourselves, but that's what we're called to. There are two ways to examine, at least two ways to examine something supposedly from the Lord, is it or not. The first is this, and I'm sure you know this. It simply is what's said. Or is the work that's being promoted, is it consistent with what we already know to be true from the Scriptures? We don't have to put God in a box to say God will not act contrary to both His character and His expressed will in the Scriptures, for sure. So if someone makes a claim, they think God's speaking through them, or they think we should take on a particular work, is what's being promoted consistent with the truth of the Scriptures? The Bible is the gold standard. So if it doesn't pass muster with the scriptures, you can reject it. The other is this. There are times in which, for instance, in Acts 11:28, 28, Agabus, a prophet from Jerusalem, is up in Antioch and he says, it says, by the Spirit. He thought God was speaking through him. He says, guys, a famine's coming. Well, you can't test that by the scriptures. But this guy was trustworthy, apparently. He was respected. And so the church hearing what he said, took up a collection to be ready. And sure enough, the famine came. And the church had wherewithal to help people who were in need. On some things, someone could tell you they think God's speaking or leading in one way or another, and you're not going to be able to go to a Bible verse and say, this is God's will, this isn't God's will. And in that case, I think you go back to 1 Corinthians 14, the church sits in on judgment and tries to figure out, we pray about it, we think about it, we put our heads together and we say, We think that's from the Lord, or we don't think that's from the Lord. Everything won't lend itself to the biblical test. Sometimes, too, um, you will hear people claim to be speaking from God, either teaching from the scriptures or claiming to be prophets, and what they will be advancing is, in fact, not only off biblically, but it is inherently evil, inherently evil, You know, Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, he says, Satan appears as an angel of light. So no wonder his followers look like instruments or voices of righteousness also. And Paul, by the way, he's talking about leaders in Corinth. He's calling them demons or people who are following Satan. These are leaders in the church. You guys know uh, Satan goes to church. Satan likes church. Satan likes religion. And th- think of the Gospels, too. Satan is in Judas Iscariot with the other disciples and Jesus. Proximity to religious is neither here nor there related to evil. Satan's comfortable in most churches, probably. So Paul's thing there is Satan appears as an angel of light. Satan, I'm sure, is in the midst of leading all kinds of churches that claim to be Christian in the world today. And that would explain some of the doctrines and some of the teachings that are promoted today today as Christian or biblical. If you read 2 Peter 2 and Jude, you'll see that all of 2 Peter 2 and the epistle to Jude is written warning us, warning the church about false teachers and false prophets. And it describes them and it describes what they look like. And these guys, they're just after basically sex, power, money, and influence. They're after all the carnal stuff everybody else on the planet is scrabbling for only they found a little niche in which it's easy to get what they want because Christians tend to be very gullible when i think of what has passed as christian on the television i'm just thinking the last 10 or 15 years the ridiculous nature of what people say in christ's name who are supported with millions and millions and millions of dollars by gullible christians it's scandalous And to me, the greater scandal is not that an individual stands up and says, I'm speaking for Christ and I'm not. It's the gullible nature of the church that receives that person or that message and supports it. That's what I can't get over. That's what I'm incredulous about, that we refuse to be hard-headed, clear-thinking people. So Paul says, on one hand... Be open. This could be the Spirit's fire starting up. On the other don't be gullible. Examine those things. I want to give you two short stories of examples of this. Both are true. Many of you will remember at least one of them. Uh, 1987, well known Christian leader, said God was holding him hostage for eight million dollars. Eight million dollars this guy believed God had commissioned him to find the the cause and the cure of cancer. And God had mandated that he had to raise $8 million by a date certain and start this medical facility that would incorporate the best of science and prayer to cure cancer. And so if you remember the times, I mean, the press loved this. This was Christianity at its worst. God is a thug in an extortion racket. And he's got to get $8 million out of this poor soul in the Midwest, unfortunately, or he's going to take his life. But, of course, what happened? He didn't raise $8 million. He raised over $9 million. Because people listened to the plea, and I think in unholy, unwise, unprofitable ways, gave the money. And he started that work. And they shut up their doors just several years later and closed. Somebody says, do you think that guy's speaking from God? This is an easy one for me. No. No, I sure don't. That is not the God I know at all. But you know, it's not. that's an easy one. Um, secular news... Uh, folks have gone in and pulled the sheets back, you know, on the Wizard of Oz wizards, these uh, televangelists who have been living lucrative lives through the 80s and 90s especially. You know, send in your money and your prayer, and the prayers are in the trash being unopened, but the cash is going through. That's the culture and the age in which we've lived. It's ridiculous. And so what do we want to do? We want to sweep it all aside. But listen to my second story. True story. Well-known teacher also. This guy claimed publicly and in writing that on dozens of occasions, as he was speaking, he would feel inspired by the Spirit. And he would point someone out in the audience, someone he'd never seen before, hadn't met before. And he would tell them things about their life that were so specific, he said they would go home and tell their friends, basically quoting John 4, the woman at the well, Jesus tells her life, and she says, Come and see a man who told me all the things I ever did. This preacher had the gall to say that's what people were saying about him. Well, one of these specifically was, in one service there's a young man, and this guy points him out of the crowd, and he says, You work in a shoe store, and you were at work last Sunday when you should have been in church. And he told him, you took in this much money, and of that, so much was profit. And the guy's, you know, flustered, shaken, and basically leaves after the service. That's the end of it. Well, later on, there's a guy who's basically going door to door, sharing the gospel with people in this same town. He sees, as it happens, this young guy. And he's reading a printed sermon. And the guy says, are you a Christian? The the fellow sharing the gospel through the town says, are you a Christian? The guy says, well, yeah, and let me tell you how I came to Christ. And he says, I was the man whom Charles Haddon Spurgeon pointed out. And when he told me those things, at first I thought, well, gosh, he knows I worked in the shoe store. He knows that I was Work Sunday. No big deal. But this guy said, when he told me how much money I took in and how much of that was profit, this is what the young man said. He said, it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him, and later the Lord met with me and saved my soul. That was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was claiming to speak inspired words from God on the spur of the moment, pointing out people. This wasn't Peter Popoff, and there weren't hidden microphones. This was C.H. Spurgeon. This was the guy we look up to Revere. as one of the greatest evangelists of all time, and he probably was. And if you read, you can read, there's story after story right along this line. One other I'll share with you just because they're encouraging to me. Oz Guinness is a hard-headed, very smart guy. He was discipled by Francis Schaeffer. Very smart guy. He speaks to business leaders all over the world, literally, internationally today. Great author, great writer. He was at a conference in England. And as he got up to speak, he saw this gal in the audience. And he said uh, she clearly was agitated. And he knew that she was there to stir up trouble at his talk. So before he gets up to speak, he prays, Lord, would you please keep that gal silent? So he gives his talk. Everything's fine. He sits down, good to go. When he gets back to his town later, a woman's talking to him. And she said, I'm just curious. I was praying for you. And when I did, I felt like God specifically told me I saw the place where you're speaking. And I saw a woman sitting there that God said, Satan has inspired her to disturb this meeting. And so I was to pray against her. And so I did. Did anything like that happen? And of course, it had. I forgot to mention, this gal came up to uh, Oz Guinness after the talk, and she said, what kind of curse did you put on me? That I'm part of a local occult group, and I was sent here to give you trouble. But I couldn't, because God was at work. Just to say, these these were hard-headed people. These were clear-thinking, biblically-informed, praying people. They weren't wackos. But God was still working. And so Paul says, don't quench the Spirit on one hand. Because God is at work. God lives in us. God inspires us to think things, to pray things, to share things. That's what he's here to do. He also gives us understanding in the Scriptures. And by the way, you can't be discerning if you don't know your Bible. I don't want to to hear the wrong thing here. If you don't know your Bible, if you don't know what the Scripture teaches, you can't be discerning. The Bible is the gold standard. You've got to come back to that over and over again and ask God by the Spirit to open up your mind to understand what the Bible says, what it's teaching, what is true. That's the gold standard. That's the consistent one. So don't quench the spirit on one hand, but be hard-headed, be clear-thinking, do not be gullible Christians on the other. Paul closes this letter by saying two things about prayer. He says, I'm praying for you, will you please pray for me? He said, may God himself, verse 23, this is a prayer, sanctify you or set you apart entirely your spirit your soul and your body preserved complete without blame or blameless until the coming or the parousia of the lord jesus and he says faithful is he who calls you he also will bring it to pass that is i'm confident in my prayer because god's going to take care of it and then he also says brothers pray for us we're praying for you you pray for us. There are a few things more encouraging than to know that someone else is praying for you. And there are a few things in my mind more valuable in Christian friendship than to pray for and be prayed for by your fellow Christians. Let me close with a prayer. This is out of Jude 12, or Jude verse 24 and 25. Jude's talked about false prophets, he's talked about being careful, warning the church. But this is how Jude winds up with his prayer. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Father, help us to be spiritually full, inspired people. Lord, in the day of the Spirit, in the age of the Spirit, help us to walk by your Spirit. Be filled with your Spirit. Be those sons and daughters who are marked out by the Spirit of God at work in us and through us. And Lord, help us to be clear thinking. God, forbid that we are gullible souls who swallow everything that comes along, supporting things that aren't from you, wasting, Lord, the time, the energy, and the finances you've given us to invest in your cause in our lifetime. Lord, help us to be filled with your Spirit, discerning people. Help us to honor you by loving you with our minds. God, help us to shake up the world and the place and the time in the world you've put us as your Spirit works in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.